the hearts of the men of Israel, and we find that David had to flee for his life out of the city. And so, in verse uh, uh, 4, Absalom says, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, and that every man which hath any suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice. And it was so that when any man came nigh to him to do obeisance, he put forth his hand and took him and kissed him. And on this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment, so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And so he was, uh, more context, he was at the gate of the city and he would, he would interact with these people who came, uh, unto the king for judgment and he would take care of matters himself and he would, uh, kiss and dote on them and, and, uh, well, it said he, they, he kissed them, right? He'd dote on them and, and probably a lot of flattery going along and they, he stole the hearts of the people. Alright? And it came to pass, um, that, uh, uh, Absalom sent some spies through all, all Israel. Verse 10 saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then shall you say, Absalom reigneth in Hebron. In other words, there was an insurrection made against his father, David, and uh, all the hearts of the people were toward Absalom. He gained and curried their favor, you see, to the point in time where he basically he had announced that I am the king that's reigning. This is what Absalom did in Israel to his father, David, who was the uh, rightly king of Israel. And so it created a situation where David is fleeing from the face of Absalom. Um, verse 13, we want to pick up reading. Second Samuel 15, verse 13. And there came a messenger to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. And David said unto all his servants that were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for we shall not else escape from Absalom. Make speed to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly, and bring evil upon us, and smite the city with the edge of the sword. So they're getting ready to leave Jerusalem. And what I want us to notice particularly this morning is the response of David's servants. In verse 15, And the king's servants said unto the king, that is to King David, Behold, thy servants are ready to do whatsoever my lord the king shall appoint. They said, Behold, thy servants are ready to do whatsoever my lord the king shall appoint. Here we have a declaration of a good, of good servants to the king. They're ready to do whatsoever their Lord, the king, should appoint. In this case, it's David. If the Lord bless us for a little while this morning, I'd like to talk to you about, uh, as a way of encouragement to us, and give us some examples in the scriptures of faithful servants of God who were in submission to the Lord's will. You know, the Bible sets us forth as disciples, and also as servants. 
in Matthew chapter 10 verse 24, it says, The disciple is not above his master, neither the servant above his Lord. We have, um, we're disciples of the Lord in that we have a master teacher. We're supposed to be teaching the same things that uh, the Lord taught and following and, and, and advocating those things. But there's also a servant Lord relationship, you see, because he's the Lord and we're his servants, you see. Uh, there's different kinds of servants uh, taught in the Word of God. And that's not my, my subject today, but there's hired servants, all right? There's bond servants, uh, and, uh, you know, you usually, and, and most of us have worked in life, right? We've, most of us probably here have worked for somebody before as an employee, have we not? Uh, in that respect, you are a, you were a, or are a hired servant, you see. Now they may not call you a servant, but you're certainly getting a paycheck, right? You've got a boss, don't you? You've got someone directing you and telling you what to do, right? That, in that respect, they are your Lord, you're a servant, and we're to serve them. And one of the things that a servant does, if, if you're gonna keep your job, that is, you're gonna do what the boss says, right? The boss says do this, then, uh, you're gonna be, you're, since you're the servant, you're serving him in that, as a hired servant, as an employee, you're gonna do what your employer says you need to do this, that, or the other. So I'm, I'm gonna serve him. I'm gonna be in submission to his authority over me as the boss, and I'm going to do whatever he says do. Alright? Now, uh, that's a hired servant. Uh, there's also bond servants taught in the, in the scriptures. We'll just quickly go to Deuteronomy chapter 15. You know, back in the days of the Jews, you had servants that were, uh, you know, if you got, <clears throat> put a modern co- connotation, you get behind in your bills and you kind of don't have any money, you could actually sell yourself as a bond servant. I would be a bond servant. I would sell myself to you and <clears throat> I would work for you for a number of years. And that would happen among the Jews. And uh, there was uh, in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 15, verse 12. Let's just start reading a little bit. And if thy brother, an Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, be sold unto thee and serve thee six years, then in the seventh year thou shalt let him go free from thee. They had a law that if you were, I guess, declaring bankruptcy and, and you're going to be an, uh, a bond servant to another person, uh, God had a law that they could only be your bond servant for seven years or six years. And after six years, they let you go out free. That was a law that God gave the Israelites. And it says, verse 13, and when you, you send them away on that seventh year, you don't send them away empty. You, you give them a grub stake, as they used to say in the old west. They, you give, you give them supplies and, and some means of subsistence to live. He says, and thou shalt furnish him liberally out of thy, that he not go away empty. He says, thou shalt, verse 14, thou shalt furnish him liberally out of thy flock, out of thy floor, and out of thy winepress, of that wherewith the Lord thy God hath blessed thee, thou shalt give unto him. 
And thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. Therefore, I command thee this thing today. All right? So, remember, you were a bondservant down in Egypt, and I delivered you. Well, this person's sold himself to you. He's your bondservant for six years, but in the seventh year, you're going to let him go free. Just like I brought you out of Egypt, you see. All right? And you were free from that bondage. But verse 16 says, And it shall be, if he say unto thee, I will not go away from thee, because he loveth thee, and thine house, and because he is well with thee. Then thou shalt take an awl, and thrust it through his ear under the door, and he shall be thy servant forever. And also under thy maidservant thou shalt do likewise. Because of a love, some of them didn't want to go. I love you. I want to continue to serve you. There's a love-servant relationship there. And my friends, we're constrained by the love of Christ to henceforth not live unto ourselves, but unto Him who loved us and died for our sins. We're love-servants servant, a, a, to the Lord in a love relationship because I love Him. I want to please Him. I want to obey Him. I want to live for Him for the great love He had for me. And the love of Christ constrains me that I want to love Him and serve Him. Not only sit at His feet and learn of Him being a disciple, but He's also our Lord. And so what does a servant do to for his Lord? He serves Him. A servant serves, right? I find in one occasion, though, in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus asked this question. He says, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? You see, there's a problem there. If I say, You're my Lord, you're my sovereign, you're my authority, well, but I'm not going to do anything you say. There's a contradiction I hope you see there. Because a servant, you know what a servant does? He serves. You know, it's a contrary a uh, ridiculous idea to have a servant that doesn't serve. I'm a servant. Why call you me Lord? See, by calling him Lord, we're saying we're your servant. Well, why don't you do the things I say? He was calling. He was calling him out for not being submissive to the authority of the Lord. See, a servant serves. I could stand up here and say, "Yeah, I'm a piano player." Well, brother Vince, you play the piano? No, I don't play the piano. But I'm a piano player. I'm a professional football player. Really? This little guy up here? You play professional football? No, no, I don't play football. That's about the same thing as saying, you're a servant of the Lord? Yes, but do you serve him? Well, no, I don't serve him. I don't really do what he says. I don't pay much attention to the Lord. But you're a servant of the Lord? Oh, yeah. Why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things... Which I say. You know, when the Lord dealt with Saul on the road to Damascus, you remember what he said? Lord, what would you have me to do? He's ready to serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. Well, let's go back over here to these servants of King David just for a moment. And I love this because I love the language that he uses in Second Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 15. The king's servant said unto the king, Behold, thy servants are ready, listen, ready to do 
whatsoever the Lord, my Lord, the King, shall appoint. We are ready to do whatsoever our Lord shall appoint. Of course, these were servants to David, right? But the thing, same thing is true with us, I trust. With Saul on the road to Damascus. Lord, what would you have me to do? He's ready to do whatsoever things the Lord would appoint because he was, he, he was a servant of God, right? He was a servant of God. So I really want to talk about the us being submissive. You can you see that they were submissive when they said, "We're ready to do whatsoever our Lord." Or, or, he said, "We're ready to do whatsoever my Lord, the King, shall appoint." In other words, they were in submission to the will of the King. That's the issue we're really talking about: being in submission. To the will of God as it's revealed in the Word of God. Here's the Word. They're waiting for the Word of the King. We're ready to do. If you want us to stay and fight, we'll fight. He said, you know, come, we're going to leave the city. We're leaving the city. The faithful servants of David said, we're ready to do whatever you say. If you say, David, we're going to go out and flee from Absalom, if that's what you're telling us, that's fine because you're our Lord and we're here to serve you. You just tell us what to do and we're ready to do whatsoever you will appoint because you're the Lord. You're our King. If you want us to stay and fight, we'll stay and fight. Can you see their willingness to the will of God? They were resigned to the will of God in deference to what they might have wanted to do. You see... See, if I'm down, I made the, the comparison of being down there on the job. <clears throat> if you're down there on a job and you just do whatever you want to do, you're probably not going to last on the job very long, right? You're there to do what the boss says do. Though that, those that are in authority say do, that's why you're there and you're serving them in that capacity as an employee. These servants are ready to do whatsoever David Whatever God, whatever David's will was for them. But sometimes we can go contrary to the will of those in authority over us when we don't understand the why of things. Why? I'm reminded over in John chapter uh, 13. Jesus took his apostles. To the side, and after they had, they rose from supper, he laid aside his garment. He began to wash the disciples' feet. You remember that here in John chapter thirteen, he poured water, verse five, into a basin. He began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? You know, if the Lord took off his garment and started washing the disciples' feet, don't you reckon it was his will to do so, that he washed the disciples' feet and they submit to that, right? That's pretty obvious, right? That's what he was doing. But he got up here to Peter. And uh, Peter says, Dost thou wash my feet? Verse 7, Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. You don't know what I'm doing now. But you'll know hereafter. Just submit, Peter. That's what he's telling him. And Peter said to him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. You see a little resistance there to the will of God? That's God manifest in the flesh. 
Well, why did he have resistance? Well, the servant's supposed to wash the master's feet. The master's not supposed to wash the servant's feet. Not so, Lord. You know, sometimes Peter was quick. I'm not going to jump on Peter. Uh, he did a lot of good stuff one time. I mean, I remember one time they were out there all afraid. They saw him walking on the water. You know, the first toe that was dipped into that water was Peter's. He said, come. If it be thee, bid me come. He, I mean, you want to get out of a perfectly good boat down a, on, a, on a lake? Start walking? I, I'm, not, I'm not coming down too hard on Peter. Look at the faith that it took for Peter to step out of that boat and start walking on the water. So I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, getting too hard on Peter, but sometimes Peter was real quick. You remember over there in, uh, Acts chapter 10, where G- Jesus let down this sheet with all, the Lord let down this sheet with all manner of, of, uh, creepy crawly things that Jews weren't supposed to eat, getting him ready to go preach to that Gentile Cornelius. Rise, Peter, slay and eat. Not so, Lord. Can you imagine? No, Lord. Well, he's saying, no, Lord, here. You're not going to wash my feet. Well, what was Peter's problem? Well, he says, thou shalt not wash my feet. Jesus answered, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. (laughs) He He changed his attitude real quick. But what was his initial problem? His initial problem was he didn't understand. This makes no sense. Lord, you're telling, your, your, your will is for, to bow down and wash my feet. It's not happening because why? Because the servant's supposed to wash the master's feet. I don't understand. Well, you know what? God doesn't require us to understand. He just wants us to be faithful and obedient. We don't have to understand all the ins and outs of why. God gave commandments to some of the, to the children of Israel. One that just came to my mind. Uh, you know, there's lots of laws and commandments he gave in the Old Testament. He didn't always explain why. Uh, one that comes to my mind is they were supposed to take those Jewish children and on the eighth day circumcise them in the flesh. I don't know why. We said, why, why on the eighth day? Well, I don't, I don't have the mind of God to tell you, but I know this, that the medical community now, and, uh, you know, since we have modern medicine, and they can measure like clotting factors and such, guess when it's highest in little baby boys? It's on the eighth day. Those clotting factors are on the eighth day. May have been why God said do it on the eighth day. You know, God gave them commands over there. When you have an issue of blood, you're supposed to run it over running water. Well, he didn't have to teach him about bacteria and all kinds of things. And, you know, finally medical science caught up with him about the 1500s, with, I believe with Joseph Lister and some of those folks, where they figured out that the surgeons, they figured out if they washed their hands, got all the dirt and grime off before they did surgery, the patients had a better prognosis. They learned that in the 50, we learned that in the 1500s. God had them running, uh, running water over issues and sores and things that you had on your body. He didn't tell him why. Jesus isn't telling him why. Peter, I'm washing your feet. He says, you'll understand later. And sometimes you, the Lord may tell us to do things in His Word and give us directions. We may not all know all the ins and outs of it, but it should be enough to us to know that it's God that said do it. And we ought to want to do it, even if we don't know why. 
Alright? Say why? Because God said do it. You children out there. And you adults out there because you were once children too, right? Your parents ever tell you, go do this, go do that, and you say, why? Why? Because I said so. Have you ever heard that as an answer? Because I said so. That's not all, I've heard that criticized before. That's not all wrong, brother. You have parents that are authority over you, and if they said go do this, you're supposed to go do it, and you don't have to ask why. It should be good enough that, that he, that, that those in authority over you, your mom and dad said do it, that should be good enough. Just because they said do it. Because they have authority over you. And uh, you want to please the Lord, don't you? Children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. You don't have to explain to your kids everything. Now, they may say, they may see a danger. You don't know what's going to happen. They may see you in danger and say, come stand by me right now. Boom! If you didn't do it, you might lose your life. You don't know what's going on. We should obey our parents in the Lord for this is right. God said it's right. And as children to parents, we don't always have to know and understand why they're telling me to do something. Because they're an authority over me. God put them in authority over me. They're my parents. And God said for me to obey them. For this is right. Alright? Now, I'll grant you, as you start getting older, I mean, it's not uh, a parent is going to be remiss if they never tell their children why they're having them do something. There's an extremes to this. If you never explain to your children why they're to do this, that, or the other, how is any teaching and training going on? Not. See, sometimes if you're trying to equip them and rear them, alright, rear them, not just raise them, you can raise hogs, dogs, and chickens by just giving them a little feed and water out there. But when it comes to children, it's called rearing. And I don't mean, and sometimes I got reared real good when I was disobedient. Alright? With a paddle. Alright? But that's part of my instruction and training. Train up a child in the way that they shall go. As the scripture says. Alright? So sometimes there's instruction, uh, of why. So I'm not excluding that. Sometimes we, if you're gonna train your children up, we need to know why you do this and that so they can train their children up and why you do this and that and you don't do this over here. So there's, especially when they start getting older, they can know more about the whys. But my friends, there's some instances you don't have to give your children a why. And children, there's instances where they don't have to give you a why. If they said do it, you better do it because they love you and they have your best interest at heart. Alright? But Peter wasn't going to do this thing. Why? I don't understand. This doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense to me. So I'm not going to do it. A lot of people won't do anything unless it makes sense. Alright? Well, if it's your parents, someone in authority over you says do this, do that, you better do it. That traffic cop out there that stops you, he has authority, a certain authority over you. And if he says, you know, put your hands on the steering wheel, you better put your hand on the steering wheel. 
If he says, can I see your driver's license? Well, you don't, you don't, you, you get the picture. There's certain people in authority, we should, uh, do what they say. Alright? Particularly your parents and especially God. We may not understand exactly why certain things. Peter didn't understand why. But Jesus said, just submit yourself. Submit yourself. I find over in the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 12, there was a man named Abraham. Actually, his name was Abram. God came to him and says, Abraham, come out from the year of the Chaldees. Come out. And come to, uh, he says, uh, to a, a country that I will give thee, a land that I'll give you. And it says, Abraham. Now we see Genesis 12, 1. And the Lord had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I'll make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken unto him. This man, 75 years old when he leaves Haran. He leaves out of that place to go into this country that God gave him. And he went up by faith. Now, he was 75 years old. He probably lived in the year of the Chaldees all his life. And I don't know if you realize how big of a deal that is. Have you ever tried to move an older person? Well, they've lived all their life. I mean, root them out of that house, root them out of that country, and have them go live somewhere else? That's pretty hard sometimes. They're pretty set in their ways. But Abraham, he didn't, he didn't say, no, Lord, this is, you know, all my family's here, uh, all these things. No. He obeyed. He walked by faith, and he went up out of that land. At 75 years of age. Alright. But a more perfect, um, uh, let's look at another example in Abraham's life. What I'm, we're going to look at some examples of where faithful men are, were, uh, women were faithful to God as a servant. Alright. Let's go to Genesis chapter 22. After he had come out of that place and he lived in the land several years, when he was about a hundred years old, God gave him a son. And it was Isaac. Isaac was the son that this promise was going to be made to, or made to. He says, of thy seed, I'm going to, I'm going to bless your seed and make a great nation. And it wasn't going to come through Ishmael. It was going to come through Isaac. And Isaac gets up about, uh, I don't know how old he was. He was a lad. I suspect he was like, uh, you know, a uh, middle schooler, a teenager, or I don't know, might not have been quite that old, I don't know. But there was a time in the life of Abraham that God came to Abraham and he said in verse 22, it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham, and that means to test or try. And uh, he said unto Abraham, and he said, uh, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains of which I'll tell thee of. Now you, you get the situation here. 
This is, this is uh, you know, at one time Abraham said, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee and be your chosen seed of all these blessings that are going to come through Ishmael. And God said, No, it's not through Ishmael, it's through Isaac. In Isaac shall thy name be called. Isaac's going to be blessed. He's the chosen son, and I'm going to bless, and all these, uh, uh, I'm going to give, make of his seed a great nation through Isaac. God told him that. Now God says, take your son Isaac, thine only son whom thou lovest, and you offer him upon a sacrifice. That means kill him. Upon a sacrifice, uh, upon an altar unto me. And so what did Abraham do? Now this makes no sense. This makes no sense because God already said, I am going to make of this this son's seed, Isaac, a great nation. And now God says, you take him and slay him over here and you offer him on a burnt sacrifice. Does that make a lick of sense? If he kills that boy, how in the world is God going to fulfill his promise to make of his seed a great nation? Makes no sense, does it? Makes no sense. Well, what did Abraham do? God told him to do that. Verse 3 says, And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And, he, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they, they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. And it came to pass, and it came, and, then, and they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar of his wood and uh, the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. He's ready to slay his son. How in the world... I mean, that makes no sense. Do you know what is the characteristic of Abraham? Can you see he's submissive to the will of God? It didn't have to make sense to him. It was enough that he knew who it was that told him to do it. And that's his God. He's the servant of the Most High God. The Most High God, his Lord, said, don't do this. So he went about to do the very thing that God said do, even though... Naturally, it makes no sense. Of course, Abraham kind of reasoned about it. We see uh, Abraham was going to take his son's life knowing that God's going to have to raise him back from the dead to fulfill the promise of making of his seed a great nation. And we find that is the very case over in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. God is going to make a great nation out of Isaac. And he said, of whom it had said, in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up. 
See, Abraham accounted that God would be able to raise him up after he took his life. God was able to raise him back up from the dead and fulfill his promise of making of his seed a great nation. So he's going to take his life. Doesn't make much sense. We see the faith, faithful Abraham. By faith. He's walking by faith, not by sight. Peter over here is walking by sight, not by faith. He's not submitting because he doesn't understand. Doesn't understand. Abraham was submissive to God's will in this situation. He didn't have to understand all the things about it, but he did understand who it was who told him to do it. We're ready to do whatsoever my Lord the King shall appoint. You just say what it is. Abraham, go slay your son. Alright, I'm, I'm on it. I'm on it. Go do this. I'm on it. Come out of the year of the Chaldees. Okay, I'm coming. Let's look at another example in Gideon. I mean, uh, yeah. In Joshua, excuse me. Let's look, let's go to, let's go to Joshua chapter 6. After God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, led them through the Red Sea, they came to Kadesh Barnea to go into the land and they didn't believe in the Lord. They said there's giants in the land, etc. We can't take the city. We can't take the countries. They had to wander in about another 38 years or so in the wilderness. Total of 40 years wandering in the wilderness till God brought them. And all those that 20 years old and up had died. Now there's a new generation. And they went across Jordan into this good land. Moses has died. Joshua is the leader. And they go in under Joshua's leadership. And the first city that they come to to take, because God said, you're going to take this land. And they took that land not because of the righteousness of the Israelites, that's another subject, but for the iniquities of the land. You go read, I think, Isaiah 9. I'll tell you that. So they're going to end as judgment upon the Canaanites of the land. And they're going to take these cities. The first one they come to is Jericho. It's a walled city. And we find in Joshua chapter 7. Uh, John, I'm sorry, it is, it's, it is 6. God said, here's how you're going to take the city. It's a walled city. And you know what happened. He says, you're going to, I don't know how much to read here. He says, uh, in verse uh, 2 says, The Lord said unto Joshua, See, I have given into thine hand Jericho, and the king thereof, and the mighty men of valor. And ye shall compass the city, and all the men of war, and go round about the city once. Thus shalt thou do six days. And seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumpets of ram's horns. And seven days ye shall compass the city seven times, and the priests shall blow with the trumpets. And it shall come to pass that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when ye hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall ascend up every man straight before him. And you know the story, right? God is saying, all right, here's how you're going to take the city. 
You're going to march, all march around it one day. You're going to blow these. You have seven priests. They're going to blow these ram's horns. And you're just going to march around it? Go back to camp. You're going to do that the next day. Go back to camp. Then you're going to do it a third day. And a fourth day, a fifth day. You're going to do it six days. And go back to camp. On that seventh day, you're going to compass it seven times. Blow on the trumpet. Give a great shout. And the walls are going to fall down flat. You're going to go in and take the city. I guarantee you that's not a military strategy you're going to think, find taught at West Point or anywhere else. What kind of military strategy is that for taking a city? Well, it was God's strategy for taking a city. It's what God said do. Alright? Joshua didn't argue with the Lord, did he? No, he was submissive to the Lord. Lord, you said do what? I mean, I don't know what he's thinking. It was kind of strange. Never heard of this military action like this before. I don't know what he's thinking, but I know what he did. He was submissive to what God told him to do simply because God is the one that told him to do it. That's good enough. God said do this, so that's what I'm going to do. And they did what God said, and the walls fell down flat, and they took the city. Alright? May not make much military sense. But it makes sense that God is the one said do it. Turn with me to Jer- Jer- Jeremiah chapter 13. Jeremiah 13. <clears throat> you know, Jeremiah was a prophet of God, right? And um, the Lord came to Jeremiah one time. And you got to understand, to be a prophet back in those days, or any of the days, it's not like they were just prophesying all the time. They were living their life. They had lives. They had, you know, livelihood. They, they did different things. Alright? Um, so he's, he's going along and the Lord speaks to him. And we're gonna pick him up here in Jeremiah 13. Thus saith the Lord unto me, Go and get thee a linen girdle and put it upon thy loins and put it not in water. Now what would you do if the Lord came to you and you knew it was the Lord and He told you to do that? Put a leathern girdle about your loins like a belt. Don't, don't put that thing in water. Just, just, it's dry and put it on you. Would we, would we be willing to do that? Would we not say, Lord, why? Lord, what? He didn't tell Jeremiah why. He just told him to do it. And it was good enough for Jeremiah that he didn't have to know the whys of the matter. He just knew that it was the Lord told him to do it. So he did it. Look at the language here. I love this language. He says, Go get thee a linen girdle and put it upon thy loins and put it not in water. That's the instruction. What's his response? So I got a girdle according to the word of the Lord and put it on my loins. God said do it, so I did it. Simple obedience, right? And the word of the Lord came unto me the second time, saying, Take the girdle that thou hast got, which is upon thy loins, and arise, go to Euphrates, that's a river, and hide it there in a hole of the rock. This is strange. You just told me to put it on, Lord. Now you're telling me to take it off. Okay, he says, so I went 
and hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. Look at that. I love that language. The Lord says, put a girdle on thy loins. Don't put it in water. So I went and got me a girdle, put it on, just like God said. Now he said, take it off. Go hide it in a hole of rock over here by the river. So I went and I hid it just like God said. What's next, Lord? Are we ready to do whatsoever the Lord our God shall appoint? Jeremiah was. And God didn't give him a lot of explanation either. And it says, verse 6 says, And it came to pass after many days. I don't know. I mean, I'm just speculating here, but Jeremiah's probably wondering, you know, you know, oh, it was a couple of days ago he told me to put that girdle on my loins. Then he told me to go hide it in a hole of rock. Then many days passed and I still have no clue as to why I did that other than the Lord told me to. I don't know what the Lord's doing. Many days passed. You remember what he told Peter? You're not going to understand now, but you'll understand later. But I'm going to throw a little uh, addition in here. The Lord, you may never understand some things of why the Lord said do certain things. Alright? Lord said do it. He says, And it came to pass after many days that the Lord said unto me, Arise, go to Euphrates, and take the girdle from thence which I commanded thee to hide there. Many days had passed. Then I went to Euphrates and digged. He's still obedient, right? Lord said, go dig it up. So I went and dug it up. Dug it. Digged it. Y'all listening? So he dug it up. He digged and he took the girdle from the place where I had hid it. And behold, the girdle was marred. It was profitable for nothing. And then the Lord let him in on what all this was about. Then the word of the Lord came unto me saying, Thus saith the Lord, after this manner will I mar the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people which refuse to hear my words, which walk in the imagination of their heart and walk after other gods to serve them and to worship them shall even be as this girdle which is good for nothing. Here was a good girdle, functional, useful. He put it on his loins. Israel was good, profitable, and useful. But through their sin and iniquity, they become, they became good for nothing. Reminds me of the New Testament. I think that phrase is good for nothing a couple of times. One's in the Old Testament. There might be more than this. I, I remember too. Talks about if the salt hath lost its savour, it's good for Nothing to be strawed out under the foot of man. Good for nothing. That means vain. It becomes good for nothing. Well, that was a lesson. But Jeremiah understood it later. But you know, even if Jeremiah hadn't understood that later, I don't think that, that wouldn't have, that wouldn't have uh, swerved him from being faithful to the Lord because he was ready to do. Lord, what would you have me to do? We're ready, I am ready to do whatsoever my Lord the King shall appoint. Abraham, it was enough for that he knew that God said do it. He didn't understand all about it. It was enough for Joshua to, to follow God's directions on how to take Jericho. Just cause God said do it that way, so he did it. Jeremiah's hiding this girdle in the place and he doesn't know. God said do this, so he's simply doing it. 
Because he knows that God is the one that told him to do it. We're ready to do. He was submissive to God's will. As reflected in his word. What God told him to do. Alright, let's go to, let's go to one more. Let's go to uh, Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. This is, this is after the children of Israel. Jeremiah, remember when he was a prophet. The king of Babylon came. We're just talking about Jeremiah. Because they were profitable for nothing. Uh, God strew them out. And they were trodden under the foot of man of the Babylonians. If I can put it that way. And they went into captivity for 70 years. At the end of 70 years, God had promised that I'm going to bring you back to the Jerusalem and Israel. I'm going to bring Judah back into the land. And that happened under uh, in the, the times of Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel. You know, they rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. God brought them back. And this was a time of... Uh, Revival, if you will, because these people, instead of going off and serving Baal and Ashtaroth and these false gods, which are no gods, which is the reason they got sent into Babylonian captivity, these people were interested in the Word of God and they were interested in serving God. And we find here in Nehemiah chapter 8 that they were so interested in serving God, they took Ezra the scribe, and they they put they took the the book of the law of the Lord, right? That they had the Old Testament, the book of the law of the Lord. They put him in his hand. They made him a pulpit of wood. He stood up and he read it from the the book read from the book of the law of the Lord, and gave the sense and caused the people to understand what was read. He said they said they put the hand in the preacher's. They put the book in the preacher's hand. And said, "Preach to us. Tell us the words of the Lord." Why? Because they were interested. Lord, what would you have us to do? How would you have us to live? Alright? And so, verse 2 of Nehemiah 8 says, And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from morning until midday. Before the men and the women and those that could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive under the book of the law. Attentive. It's like they were hanging on every word. They were listening. Alright? They weren't, they weren't, they weren't, uh, you know, saying, I'll, I'll, you know, wish he's quit because, you know, I've got to watch the ball game this afternoon. They weren't thinking about other things. They were had their focus on the worship of God and the reading of the book of the law of the Lord. Lord, what would you have me to do? You see the mindset of these people. This is very important. Because they're ready to do what sort of the Lord would appoint them to do. And so, preach to us. Show, show us. Because they've been out of, you know, they've been out of sorts 70 years. They're probably not really educated on a lot of things God said do. Now they're they're learning. You know, there's there's times in Israel's history that it got so bad that, uh, and I can't remember, I, I can find it for you, but I can't recall exactly which king it was. I should probably remember, but I don't. Uh, 
But they, they, uh, when one of the kings, he was, he did that was right in the eyes of the Lord. They had the, the, the temple was in such shambles that, uh, they were going through the, you know, this ruined building that was called the temple and they found the book of the law of the Lord in it. What's this? They lost the word of God. And they started reading it and they saw that we're in big trouble. God told us to do all this stuff. We're in big trouble. And they went and read it to the king. Yeah, they lost the word of God at one occasion. Well, now they've been 70 years in Babylonian captivity. I'm not saying they lost everything. But they're real keen and interested in what the law of the Lord says. What's God's message for us? And it says they read in the book of the law. They, they read from morning until midday. All they could hear and understand, they kind of had congregational, you know, they, uh, the little kids were there too that could understand. That's important. Alright, they're all there present. And their, their ears were attentive under the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood which they had made for the purpose. And it says that these others with him, in verse 8 says, So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. They were explaining the word of God. Sounded like a church service done. I mean, they, you know, on a pulpit of wood, reading out of the book of the law, causing the people to understand the reason and the sense of it. Alright? Well, that was one day. You know what they did the next day? They went right at it again. They're, they're on fire for the Lord, you see. This is a different kind of people. And of a penitent heart. And really hungry for the word of God. And wanting to do what God wants them to do. A far cry from the manner of people that went into captivity. These are the people that came out. Alright? And it says in verse 13, On the second day were gathered together the chief of the fathers and of all the people and priests and the Levites. They gathered together under Ezra the scribe even to understand the words of the law. You know why they were there listening so intently? Because they wanted to understand the word of God. They weren't there just to be entertained. They wanted to understand God's word. So they were attentive to God's word. Because God manifests, according to Titus 2, 2, God manifests his word through preaching. God shows us things in preaching. Alright? They were there to understand the words of the Lord. And verse 14 it says, And they found written in the law, and they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in the booths, dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month. Alright? If you want to go read this later, go to Leviticus chapter 23. He's reading out of Leviticus chapter 23. Alright? After 70 years of Babylonian captivity, they're, they're found a place in the Bible. In the law of the Lord. Where it says that Israel should dwell in booths of the feast of the seventh month. And they should publish and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go forth unto the mount and fetch olive branches and pine branches and myrtle branches and palm branches and branches of thick trees to make booze as it is written. In other words, they had little huts. I believe it kind of emulates how they were, you know, God led them out in the wilderness and they dwelt in, you know, they didn't dwell in nice houses. They were in tents and huts and Things they could carry around and make for shelter, and it. And I, you go read the lesson, and you'll get the lesson. 
in Leviticus 23 of why God told them to do it. But he says, for seven days, you're going you're gonna to take these branches and things, you're going to dwell in these booths for seven days during the Feast of the Tabernacle. That's what you're going to do. He told them to do that. And so, so the people, what, they, what do you think they did? <clears throat> it says, so they went, kind of like Jeremiah. Go, go put the girdle on your own and go hide it. So I went. So I did. What did they do? They found written where they were supposed to dwell in these booths. And it says in verse 16, So the people went forth and brought them and made themselves booths, everyone upon the roof of his house and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the street of the water gate and in the street of the gate of Ephraim. And all the congregation of them that were come again out of captivity made booths and sat under the booths this is kind of remarkable. You say, why was it remarkable that they did that? This next verse. Next part of the verse. He says, For since the days of Joshua the son of Nun, unto that day had not the children of Israel done so. It says there was very great gladness when they did what God said do. You say, why is that a big deal? Because a lot of people are real prone to follow tradition. They found it in the Word of God where God said do something and it's something that Daddy didn't do, Granddaddy didn't do, and Great-Granddaddy didn't do in the worship of God. As a matter of fact, this hadn't been done for hundreds of years. It's something that had been left off. Hadn't been done for hundreds of years. But you know what? That wasn't a discouragement to them. Why? Because they're ready to do whatsoever Lord their king would appoint. Alright? They're ready to do it. Ready to do it. God says go this way, we're ready to go. The servants of David the king says we're ready to do whatsoever the hand of whatever, uh, my lord the king shall appoint. If you want us to stay and fight, we'll fight. If you want us to go here, we will. We'll go with you. We'll go out here with you. Alright? We're ready to do those things. And here in this place, they started doing something that it may have been a little, which was different than what they had been doing because they found it in the Word of God. Anytime we find something left off in the Word of God, you know, and I don't know what all your practices are, you know, in the New Testament, they had fasting and prayer. A lot of people don't say much about fasting anymore. But it's in the Bible. Alright? They were merely faithful to God. God, they found it in the Word of God where it said do it, and so they did it. Even though it hadn't been done since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun. Alright? Now, I don't like, I'm going to tell you, I don't like change. I don't like change. I don't know what you're, what you, uh, uh, I, I, I go to a restaurant. My wife can order my meal every time, depending on where we go, because I never venture out and try something new. I don't like change. Alright? And, uh, and I'll just give you a plug for no change. No change is usually, if I have to choose between change or no change, it's gonna be a no change. Because there's reason people do things usually, right? 
You know, there's a scripture in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 24. says, meddle not with them that are given to change. Given to change. See, people can be given to change. And without getting too political, most of those, I would say, on the left are really given to change. They want to change a lot of things. We've seen a lot of changes in our country, haven't we, on the social level. We heard a prayer about, you know, the transgenderism and different things. Those on the left are really given to change. It's not good to be given to change. He says, meddle not with them that are given to change. He says, for your calamity will come upon you quickly. There's calamity and ruin ruin upon people that are just given to change. Oh, I just want to change. I want to do this different. I want to do this different than my parents. Well, you know, if their parents are doing what's right, don't try to just be different than your parents. They're trying to teach you, you see. You know, I read this, uh, I'll just, since I already started on this line, I, I, I see it. Uh, commercial at times, I think it's a, I think it's a, is it a, I think it's a progressive commercial. You know, this guy's trying to make people not like their parents. Don't be your parents. Well, you know, there's, you, that, that sounds all cute, but there's, there, the, the, the evil men and seducers in this world don't want you to be like your parents. They think that's something bad. I'm going to tell you it's not bad if your parents are doing what's right. You model yourself after your parents if they're doing what's right. And the things in the church that are being done right, we ought to do it right. Follow the Word of God. So I'm just giving you this as an aside to this example. You know, on one extreme, you can have people says, I'm not going to change, do anything different than what my granddaddy did or my great-granddaddy did. They didn't do it in the church this way. Let me give you an example. In the worship of God, did you realize that back in the 1600s that the song service in a worship service was at the end, not the beginning? Back in Benjamin Keach's day and some of those particular Baptists in England, it was at the end of the service. It wasn't at the beginning of the service. Alright? Well, you know, I don't care one way or the other, just so you're singing and making melody in your heart unto the Lord. He didn't say if you do it before the, the preaching or after the preaching. But we don't want to be just given to change for no reason. So, you know, I think we ought to just start, you know, we ought to mix it up. Let's just have uh, singing at the end of the preaching. Just because I'm given to change. Well, that's not a good reason. You kind of see what I'm saying? If we have clear direction to do something in the Word of God different than what we're doing, we better do it. But if there's no direction on whether you have it at the beginning of the service, I'd just soon keep it the same. Don't we need to unsettle people? Whatever the Lord said do, we should do it. We should do it. These, all these examples this morning is, I've tried to bring them way of encouragement. You have Abraham. You have Jeremiah. You got Joshua. You got these children of Israel who wanted to do whatever God said do. God said do something a certain way. And because they were resigned to God's will, they just up and did it. God said do this, go do it. God said do this, I'll do it. I may not have to understand it. 
It may go against, it may make me feel uncomfortable. Because it may be something I've left off. Like living in a hut for seven days. As these people did. But it says that they did that and there was very great gladness. You know, there's always gladness. When you hear the words, well done, thou good and profitable servant. You've pleased the Lord. When He said, do this, go here, go here. Do this and do that. Being reconciled and resigned to God's will is a choice blessing. And I trust that we would think about these, these examples of Abraham that doesn't understand why I'm doing this except he knows that God said do it. Jeremiah doesn't know why he's doing all this, the girdle and all that stuff, except he knows that God said do it. Alright? Joshua doesn't understand how this is going to take the city other than God said do it, and this is what's going to happen. So he did it. Don't know all the ramifications of these and that Nehemiah, but we're going to, God said do it, so we did it. I am ready to do whatsoever my Lord the King shall appoint. May that always be the sentiment of our hearts. Like Saul on the road to Damascus. Lord, would you have me to, Lord, what would you have me to do? Well, here it is. So I do. May God bless us to have hearts of a servant. Maybe sometime in the future, because I didn't get to it, I want to talk about submission. What I've been talking about is submission to the will of God as revealed in His Word. There's also a, a resignation and submission to the will of God as God meets it out in providence. You know, are we okay with what the Lord's doing? Or are we okay with what the Lord's not doing? May God bless you. You have to think on these things.